Hello, everybody. I'm Bob Luz, President and CEO of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, and I want to welcome you to Together We Win, the MRA podcast. So let's get going. Welcome to the MRA podcast, Together We Win. And today is a really, really cool, special day because it's four days before uh, Saturday, May 29th, when COVID just goes away. It, it, it's gone in Massachusetts. It's, it's erased from our memories, and we're able to start to push forward. Not really, uh, but you know, hopefully it's the beginning of the uh, the new dawn for us. And it's exciting time frame. And that's today when we're taping. And so uh, it, it is an exciting time. Steve, your thoughts on Saturday? I've been counting down the days and since since uh, March 16th when we're going to get this day. Uh, May 29th, it's, it's a beautiful day. I think everyone will remember that day. I think it's fitting that it's a long weekend. We're going to go right out. We're going to celebrate. We're going to start doing uh, everything that we have been doing. Going to party like it's uh, 2019 uh, from for, for this summer. Steve Clark, our Vice President of Government Affairs. Uh, excited to have you back. And obviously my, my other cohort, Kerry Miller, our VP of Operations. Kerry? Got to call it the mask off edition, right? We're we're out. We've got the masks off, and we're and everything's good to go. I mean, what a sigh of relief you see out there, right across, right across the board. I mean, people moving around. There's actually traffic going into Boston now, which is kind of a bad thing, but it's great to see. Yeah, no, it really is. And uh, you know, I know uh, I got double vaxxed in um, in March. Actually, uh, I'm a Moderna, Steve. I'm a, I'm a Moderna as well. I will be uh, two, day, two weeks out from my vaccination on May 28th. So perfect timing. Hey, it is, I'll tell you, um, you know, honestly, uh, working with the governor's team and, uh, and, and the team that we've worked with uh, at the MRA so long, Steve and I uh, have spent time with uh, Steve DiFilippo, Ed Kane, and Jeff Gates through this whole thing. We were part of a subcommittee working with the state. Uh, it's been um, nothing short of uh, an incredible journey for, for all of them because they were running businesses at the same time they were helping govern and lead our entire industry. And they represented our industry incredibly great. And uh, I cannot tell you how grateful we are for their uh, their service. But, um, you know, as we as we get closer and closer, the, the, goal bar, the, the goal line kept moving back in our favor instead of out. And for a long time, it just kept moving further and further away. But literally in the last uh, couple of weeks, the last week before the announcement, it moved from uh, uh, August 1st to July 1st to ultimately May 29th. And, and what a relief because really the rest of the, the rest of the Eastern Seaboard was going to be opening up around the same time. And so we would have been an outlier. So it's, it's terrific to see. And Carrie, I know our restaurants are thrilled and, you know, they're indoors, they're outdoors, they're going to have a bar and there's, there's got to be excitement that everybody you're talking to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's incredible, but I, it's, it's it's the double-edged sword, Bob. You yeah. and I understand fully that we've been banging around in this HR world for a long time and we've seen staffing uh, shortages in the past, but nothing like this. And coming out of something that, you know, was horrific, now we have an opportunity to get back out there and we can't find the bodies and the talent to, to, to man, man the... Yeah, 
No, and, and some, you know, I've actually had a few people refer to it as the new pandemic, the staffing shortage. And today you have a guest that's going to uh, be talking a little bit to that point. Uh, uh, so tell us a little bit about Todd. Yeah, when we started thinking about what we what was important to talk about today, there's a guy out there by the name of Todd Snopkowski. Everybody probably knows him anyways, but he's founded SnapChef. And SnapChef is like the premier on-staff, uh, uh, on-demand staffing solution. And he... His world blew up. He was putting 300 day chefs out uh, before the pandemic and all that shut down. So Todd had to go back using technology. He's developed some models to make it so people can actually uh, educate, train and staff people to get into their restaurants. So it's a a solution. It's not a silver bullet. There's no silver bullets out there, but it's something worth discussing and and looking at. Certainly timely, certainly timely. And thank you for having him on. And and Steve, I know... You have a really important guest to me because um, for for another couple of months, I still report to him. So we're going to do a surprise job review for Bob. We're going to have uh, MRA chairman Jeff Gates. Uh, what a year to be a chairman. What a year to navigate the crisis and, and what a leader we've had. Jeff has done a fantastic job both navigating uh, professionally for himself and the industry. Uh, and we're going to have Jeff on as we kind of look back on the last year and, and his time as, a, as MRA chairman. And it's going to be a good conversation. Yeah, Jeff, I mean, we have really been blessed to have Jeff as a chair. Um, and you know, I know you're going to get into it with him, but the, the, the story behind the curtain, uh, in terms of his business, um, during this past, uh, 14, 15, 16 months here is nothing short of extraordinary. And, and he gave an unbelievable amount of time and effort to, uh, helping lead us through this, uh, just horrible, horrible, awful time. So, uh, he is a true hero uh, as far as I'm concerned. Well, that's really exciting. I've got uh, a leader from, from the hospitality scene and tourism scene in Boston, who is just great people. Uh, she's been, uh, doing this for well over 20 years now. Um, and she's, you know, someone who I think is respected across, uh, the entire genre of the of the tourism industry, from museum operators to event spaces to pro sports teams to uh, hotels to restaurants to convention centers and to tourists and locals alike. Uh, Cindy Brown is uh, CEO of the Boston Duck Tour uh, Group, and uh, her her vehicles and her company uh, have been synonymous with uh, Boston and tourism and fun. And yes, uh, championship parades from uh, from from all over. And uh, uh, I am really honored to have Cindy Brown join us this morning. Cindy Brown, welcome to Together We Win, the MRA podcast. And thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Highlight of my day. Highlight of your day. It's the highlight <laughs> of my life when I get to talk to you. Hey, listen, uh, you, you, you are the greatest. And, um, you know, I know... You didn't start your life in a uh, uh, duck boat. Uh, so I know that you, you went to school, got a degree, I think in finance, maybe something different, and you didn't start in this industry. How did you end up at duck boats in the, in the two-second tour there? You are correct. I actually went to Franklin and Marshall College, and I studied economics, graduated in 1990, and went to go work for the Boston Company. And that is where I met the founder of Boston Duck Tours, who you know, was my boss for a couple of years. He left the company, discovered the idea of amphibious tours, decided to start Boston Duck Tours, called me, said, hey, I'm opening this company. Do you want to come be my marketing and sales director? And I said, absolutely not. I'm in banking. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. That was my degree. 
And he convinced me to have lunch at the Marriott Longworth. I'll never forget for about two hours. And at the end of that lunch, I was completely convinced that this was going to be a lot more fun than banking. And um, it took about six to eight months before uh, we were actually able to open the company, getting permits. But he gave me a call in uh, summer of 1994. It said, give your notice for opening. And then we opened the company in October of 94. It was, it was a whirlwind. It was one of those weird uh, decisions that you make. But at that point, I was 24. I really didn't have a lot to lose. And in fact, the Boston company, my boss there said, well, if it doesn't work out, you can always come back, not thinking that it would work out. <laughs> Thankfully, it did. <laughs> assuming that there would be failure, right? No. Assuming it was. I think they all assumed that Andy yeah. was crazy, Andy Wilson, the founder, and that it wouldn't work. But, you know, here we are 27 years later. Wow. I got to tell you, though, before we jump into anything else, I struggled to see you in the banking industry with the, <laughs> the, the person that I know and, and banking just does not go together. So you found I your know. way. It's crazy. I mean, I thought that's what I was supposed to do because it was like more traditional then. You know, you got out of college, you did what you were supposed to do. And I never knew there was a fun industry called hospitality, travel and tourism that had good jobs and, and you could work really hard and be successful, but also have fun. I just didn't know it existed. And, and thank God this kind of fell on my lap. Well, as I said in the uh, in the opening, you are part of the highlight reel of, of hospitality and, and tourism in greater Boston. And, and uh, we're so thankful that you are the leader that you are. So you are so sweet. So things things are kicking along. Um, you know, the the company starts to grow. How long have you been in role in the role of the CEO position now? So technically, I mean, these are different titles, but technically, I started running the company in two thousand or in nineteen ninety seven. I became general manager, and then two thousand, the founder Andy Wilson decided to leave the company and sell his uh, ownership interest to myself and three other partners. It's a limited partnership, so we have. 40 some odd investors, but he sold his little portion to three of uh, the four of us. And then we started running in 2000. So the past 21 years, we've been doing it all on our own. Um, and then the other three partners, two of has since retired. So there's just Tony Cerulli, who's our chief engineering officer and myself left. But, you know, we have an incredible longevity with our staff here. A lot of people stay 10, 20, 25 years. So uh, it's been a good team here the whole time. No question about it. And, you know, uh, I mean, Duck Tours provides such a service to the city of Boston and and to, to the people that come to, uh, you know, really learn more about Boston. And it's, you know, it's a walking tour history and and stories uh, about all about Boston and the, and the great uh, places and venues and um, all the great antidotes about Boston. But it's done in, in, inside of a, a amphibious uh, vehicle. Um, so tell us about the growth of Duck Tours. How, you know, how, how has it been over the years? And uh, until we get up to the last, uh, two, until we get up to March of 2020, <laughs> we'll talk about that in a little bit. When everything spiraled out of control. Yeah, yeah. You know, we grew very steadily. We started with four vehicles and four captains in, in 1994. And after the first year of um, incredible success, we started slowly adding, you know, five or six more people each year and one or two or three more ducks and some years more, some years left. But steadily, we started growing the business and adding departure locations. We went from, you know, our, our first stop was the aquarium. We got stuck in the middle of the big dig and came over to the Prudential Center. And then we outgrew that space. So we added a second location at the Museum of Science and grew that one. And then we still had more demand. So we added a third location at the aquarium. And We've been lucky to grow with staff, with vehicles, and with departure locations pretty steadily until 
you know, till about five or six years ago when we, we kind of hit our peak of, of we have everything that we need. We have enough space. We have enough employees. And, um, you know, the growth was slow enough that it wasn't overnight, but it, it, it's, you know, a lot bigger than any of us ever thought it would be. In fact, we had to ask the city to add vehicles every time. And we got to 16. I remember our founder, Andy Wilson, said, this is all we'll ever ask. Put that in the letter. And I was like, I don't think we want to put that in writing just in case, you know, and here we are with 28 vehicles. So um, I don't think we he would have ever known um, the success that we'd have. Unfortunately, he passed away years ago, but I don't think he ever envisioned that this company would be as big and as worldwide known as it is right now. Yeah. And you talk about the fact that you've added multiple, you know, locations in terms of where I can get on. And by the way, I've been on, and I counted in my mind, six uh, uh, tours. Um, wow. All paid, by the way. <laughs> I was where, where, you never called me and, for free tickets. And, no, That's no. And, 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 and I will tell you that my uh, every time that I've gone and brought uh, friends of ours from out of town, I, I get back on it, and, and my wife and I have a great experience. It really is terrific, whether you're Aww. native Bostonian or um, or just uh, someone from out, out of the city. But here's my question: uh, You had to move the entrance into the um, into the river at one point, didn't you? Well, yeah. So we started with our first ramp, which was built, um, you know, to open in '94, and I, I still remember it cost about a, a quarter of a million dollars to build. And then we had to move the ramp a second time or another time uh, because they were renovating North Point Park. So we had to build and pay for a temporary ramp to use during construction. And then once that was done, we built a third ramp, which is our permanent ramp um, at the cost of a million dollars. So we have spent a lot of money on ramps and access to the water. Um, But obviously, otherwise it would be a trolley tour if it was just going through the street. So water access for us is really important. And um, being on the Charles, a lot of people, visitors and locals alike don't get on the Charles and appreciate the views of Cambridge and Boston from the Charles. So it's a nice niche. Everyone is, is pretty good access to getting on the Harbor and seeing Boston from that vantage point. But being on the Charles river is really stunning, especially right around sunset. Oh yeah, it is. Oh yeah, it is. So tell us a little bit about that vehicle, if you would. And you know, you know, I mean, it's, it's not only a terrific vehicle, but it's gotta be a bad to maintain. So talk, talk, (laughs) talk a little bit about that. I will. I'll tell you, we have a garage facility in Dorchester with about 20, um, give or take during the season, mechanics that service the vehicles um, every single night and do detailing to them. So we've got an amazing staff there with a lot of longevity as well. But we started in 94 with an original World War II amphibious vehicle called a Duck, D-U-K-W. And those were used, uh, you know, storming the beaches in Normandy, bringing troops and supplies from ship to shore. Very historic, very well-known vehicles. And, you know, we would, you know, try to maintain them and get parts. And and as they got older, obviously, parts and maintaining them became much harder. So we went through a long period of buying all new vehicles. So all 28 vehicles that we have right now are what we call truck ducks, which are replica World War II ducks built from scratch for sightseeing. So they're more reliable. They're a little bit bigger. They're more efficient. They run on biodiesel. Um, they have parts that we can get. Um, so as much as we love the story of the authentic World War II vehicles, <laughs> it really makes more sense to have a vehicle especially built for tourism. And um, our mechanics appreciate that as well because those old ones were getting hard to maintain. But um, they're they're really cool. Not many people have ever had that experience of going from land into water in a vehicle. And, you know, some people don't believe it's going to happen. Some people scream with delight or terror. 
but it really is a thrill every time you go in, you look at people's faces and they, they kind of can't believe that they're floating, you know, one minute later. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and like I said, every time I've been there, that's the thing I'm looking for. And, and it's the thing I enjoy most is seeing the look on everybody's faces that first, that first plunge. And, yep. you know, so, so we talk a lot about tourism and we'll get into that in just a second, but it's not just tourists that come on your boat. Tell me, tell me all the other types of uses that uh, you, you see guests on your, on your uh, vehicles from. One of the things that I think is the most impressive and, and really the most heartwarming is that so many locals love the ducks. And believe me, I've worked with other duck companies around the country. Uh, you know, we don't own them, but we know of them and locals did not like them. There was a, in Philadelphia, they had a duck tour. And they had a little slight, uh, slogan that the locals would say is shut the duck up, you know, because they didn't like the ducks being around and quacking and whatnot. But in Boston, the locals are very welcoming. You know, if you drive through the duck and you may have seen this on the tours you've taken, people quack at us from the sidewalk mm-hmm. and the children wave. And the, even the firefighters and police officers, they expect us, the construction workers, they all know if they're on the tour route, you're going to see them throughout the day. And it's a really warm, welcoming um you know, thought to have locals, not only in Boston, but, you know, throughout the state taking the tour. And it, it has helped, obviously, with the tourism struggles we're having right now. But with that, you know, we also work really hard to give back to the community. And our philanthropic mission is clean water education and veterans. So we spend a lot of time and money and hours, volunteer hours, supporting those causes and, you know, primarily in the Boston area. So we feel like if we make our living off the streets of Boston, we should be giving back to the city and the Charles River. So, a lot of good comes from the work that we do, um, giving back to the city. And I think that's why the relationship is so warm and welcoming. Yeah, no question about it. And and you are, you and Duck Tours are the face of philanthropy here in Boston. You really do do a great job giving back in so many ways, one of which we'll talk about in a few minutes. So tell us um, how you fit in with the tourism industry, how you connect it with all the uh, hotels and, and restaurants and convention centers and uh, convention visitors bureaus. How do you play in that? <laughs> What's nice about my job is after many years of being far more hands-on day-to-day, uh, I'm, I'm in a perfect role right now for me 27 years later where I can um, play a part in the bigger picture of Boston hospitality. So serving on the board for the Mass Convention Center Authority, serving on the board for the Greater Boston Convention and Visitors Bureau, um, you know, obviously you and I have worked on, on Massachusetts Visitor Industry Council. Yes. There are a lot of roles like that where I think it takes a lot of us seasoned uh, professionals in our industry. We've built our careers, we've found success, and now it's our time to give back to the city and to the state and work together to make the industry stronger. So in, in my role, I spend a lot of time working on boards and, you know, working with community groups and schools and mentoring students. Um, but then our company also learns that, no one's coming to, you know, I shouldn't say no one. Most people aren't coming to Boston just to take a duck tour and to leave. So we know that there's a need for them to stay overnight. And there are restaurants where they want to eat and other attractions that they want to visit. So we do a lot of packaging, hotel packages, school field trip packages that include, um, you know, going to Blue Man Group and going to Cheers and then having a duck tour. So we sell a lot of other products. We act as a receptive operator. And that has helped us also build our reputation within the city as a partner and someone who's you know looking to to make everyone successful and that's one thing that I'm really proud of our first package was in 1995 it was a duck tour lunch at the chart house and visited the aquarium and no one was doing that back then and we found great success and it has built you know every year new restaurants new attractions new hotel packages and 
the, the guests find that incredibly helpful because they don't necessarily know what they can do or should do. We make it easy for them. We are all part of the same ecosystem, and you you put it so well, and um, and and you you really live the motto of uh, "Together We Win," and uh, you know uh, that's what's been driving us here at the Massachusetts Restaurant Association for many years, and certainly during this past year. Um, so let's dive into the to the past uh, you know fifteen sixteen months now. Um, you, you're you're humming along record tourism. Uh, everything's uh, rocking and roll and you're getting ready to, you know, maybe, maybe throw a parade for somebody uh, <laughs> in, in March, you know, as we were getting through some seasons and it hit. So tell us what, uh, how, how bad the last year has been and, and how you're going to start to dig out of this now. Well, it was interesting because we were about to start our season. We start normally on March 21st. Yeah. So the week before that, you know, two weeks before that, things were getting a little weird. And we do our training offsite at, at EF Education over on the Charles River. And they called and they said, uh, we, we can't have you come here. We can't have that many people in the building. We we're like, what are you talking about? And, you know, it was a really foreign concept back then. You have to kind of not realize what happened since then to go back and, and think about it. And we said, okay, all right, what are we going to do? And he said, okay, maybe we should push. <laughs> this is what we thought. Instead of opening the 21st, we said, let's push it off to April 1st. It should be fine by then. We thought nine days was actually going to make a difference and everything would be gone and we'd all be opening again. Um, obviously, fast forward, we didn't open April 1st or Mar May 1st or June 1st or July 1st. And finally, by mid-July, we were able to open partially last year at 50% capacity with um, basically 50% of our vehicles we put on the road. We had to take them all off and drop the insurance and all the registrations to save money. Uh, so we were able to open last year. Um, we ended up losing a lot of money and we lost a lot of staff, obviously, because we couldn't bring people back um, during that time. Um, but we were able to, to be on the streets and we made the conscious decision to say, listen, people need something fun to do. The Ducks bring a lot of people happiness seeing them on the streets. We should open and do the best that we can for as long as we can. So we ran through the end of October. It closed a month early in November. And obviously things got much worse over the winter and we were Mm -hmm. uh, it closed anyway. So for us, it didn't affect us as much then, but, you know, fast forward to this spring and we were struggling with, you know, can we open? And of course we were able to, again, at 50% capacity and the news that we can open this Friday at hundred percent is really a game changer for us because it's a very expensive business to run the vehicles, the maintenance, the rent, you know, everything is, is the insurance. It all adds up. So if we can get, you know, over 50%, we have a shot at having a profitable year and, bringing more staff back and, and carrying more visitors. We had days this spring where we were so busy that we were sold out before we started the day. And we turned people away from 9 a.m. until 6 p.m. So the demand has been there. We just haven't had the capacity. So hopefully beginning Friday, we'll be able to align closer with the demand and really fill those empty seats. Yeah. And again, uh, we're going to be, this, we're taping for next month. So this will be playing next month. So you will have had tremendous success. I'm I'm going to be making sure that we drive people to you uh, here uh, as we open up. But, you know, I, honest to God, I, I've been saying this for a while. I think we're going to have a great tourism season here in great in the greater Boston area. I think it's going to be different than anything yep. we've seen recently. It's not going to have national as much national, certainly not as much international travel, but I think there's just a pent up desire for regional tourism and, and people are going to want to get out and explore Boston and do things they normally don't do and, and come in from, you know, the mid Atlantic States. And so I'm really confident that we're going to be filling, filling the boats up all, all season long and well into the, uh, well into the fall. I hope so. I mean, the, the biggest loss for us, obviously, is international visitors, which yeah. are huge. You know, cruise ships, we've lost 
for this year. Um, you know, obviously the meetings, conventions, business travel. Um, but I think you're right. I We are seeing people coming from all over the country, driving and flying in. And I think with the vaccination rates being really high in Massachusetts, yeah. there's a feeling of safety here. So I can only hope that that will be followed by, you know, visitors coming and enjoying the city over the summer and, and certainly into the fall. So for those of us local, uh, here's the question. <laughs> what was the first duck boat parade championship? What What was the actual first one that the sports team went up? The first one we did was the Patriots. Uh, and it's funny because we had the, and I'm going to get the years wrong and I should have looked this up before, but the Patriots made a Super Bowl against Green Bay. And I remember David Balfour, who worked with the, 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 the now it's a DCR, then it was the MDC called. He's like, if they win, we're going to do a parade and we're going to pick this duck and that duck. And of course they lost the first year. Mm-hmm. And then the next year they won. And we got the call from Mayor Menino and, you know, putting together a parade out of thin air, not knowing what we were doing. And the city didn't know what they were doing. And the patients didn't know what we were doing, but we pulled it off and, um, you know, pinch yourself kind of moment for ourselves and our staff to have that kind of notoriety and, and fanfare and the, the honor of doing it. And I think just because that one went, you know, pretty well each year when the parades uh, were called upon us, we, we rose to the occasion and they've obviously gotten far more professional and bigger and more exciting. And, you know, the Red Sox winning for the first time was like, you know, a mind blowing experience and, and terrifying. You know, we get the parade and we're excited about it, but it is terrifying until the last truck duck drops the last person and everything goes well. And then we can take a breath and then, you know, guzzle a bottle of wine because it's <laughs> over, but there's a lot of eyes on us and, you know, anything can happen. You can get a flat tire or you can have someone, you know, fall off the duck because they're on the roof or the bow. And it's terrifying as much as we love them. N- none of those players really would ever be reaching out or, <laughs> Being leaning over or be drinking anything they couldn't do oh, should be drinking. No, never. no, no, They've no. They've never told our staff to f off ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, it is uh, it is a, a ritual that we love to see, and we'd like to think that you know uh, Cindy Brown and the and the duck boats are part of our lucky charm. I mean, we've had an incredible run since the first parade, so that's for sure. I know, and I will tell you, for the Red Sox parade, we christened Red Sox Nathan which was our first sports-themed and only sports-themed duck in August, the year that they won. So we have a feeling that that had something to do with the Red Sox finally, you know, winning. There you go. There you go. And now it's time for the Sprague lightning round. Sprague Energy. They are our pals, our friends, and can save you real money. Uh, okay. This is our lightning round. So I'm going to fire um, six questions at you, and we're just going to look for the quickest answer you got. And move okay. forward. You ready? I'm nervous, but I'm ready. You're nervous. You get ready. <laughs> Do you have a glass of wine for this? That a is... big glass of water. All right. All right. <laughs> All right. Question number one. Tom Brady or Bill Belichick? Oh, are you talking about friendship or relationship? <laughs> Friend, no, not friendship, not relationship. <laughs> Professional. Who are you picking? I'm picking uh, Brady. Brady it is. Uh, I won't ask you your favorite restaurant, but what is your favorite genre of restaurant? Um, gosh, I'm gonna go with seafood. A, a true Which Bostonian, is being there, in New England. Yeah. there you go, there you go. All right, medium rare, medium well, or vegetarian? 
You know what? I am a new vegetarian as of about a year and a half ago, but it would be medium rare had it not been for my switch to vegetarianism. Uh, you can always pescatarianism. come. You can, you can always come back. You don't have to stay <laughs> pescatarian forever. <laughs> Julia Child, Ming Tsai, Rachel Ray, or Gordon Ramsay? Ming Tsai. Ming Tsai. Definitely. It's Saturday. There's nothing on the schedule. What are we likely to find you and your family doing? Oh, this is perfect. I get up at about 5.30. I go for a long bike ride. This weekend I did about two and a half hours or a long paddle on the water, maybe a yoga class, big, big breakfast with the family, gardening. I have huge gardens that I garden. I spend hours and hours doing that. Um, get together with the neighbors for a little cocktail party and in bed by nine o'clock. Wow. That <laughs> is a full day. Wow. 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 And my final question, which is my final question, to each and every guest, the team most likely to be in the next duck tour parade. See, I told you you'd you like know, one of my questions. I'm going to, I'm going to say the Red Sox. I feel like they are not going to have the summer slump that they often have. And I think everything will have gotten better by this fall and will be primed for a win and an actual traditional parade. Nothing against the other teams, but I'm going with the Red Sox. There you go. Pretty bold after the Boston Bruins are now proceeding pretty pretty far into the playoffs. I know. Playoffs. My staff's going to kill me right now for saying that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cindy, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy thank schedule. Thank you. This was we, fun. We wish Duck Tours and you just the best of luck going forward. You are our champions. Thank you. And thank you for your friendship and leadership during this crazy time. You have been a true leader for, for Boston, Massachusetts. So I oh, appreciate that. Thank you. That means a lot coming from you. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> I'm Steve Clark, Vice President of Government Affairs for the Mass Restaurant Association. And this is live with From the Hill. All right. We have a very special guest on the Together We Win podcast. We are joined today by outgoing MRA chairman and Bob Luz's boss, Jeff Gates. Jeff Gates, thanks for joining us today. Hey, thanks for having me today, Steve. Jeff, it's been an unbelievable year. Um, again, thinking back to when we were on a plane in D.C. in March of 2020, and we were wondering how long this COVID situation was going to go on, and we were having a conversation of whether we might have to shut down for a couple of days. Uh, talk to us about what, you know the last year and, and some, of the th some of the thoughts you were having as we went into that pandemic and, and as we went through it. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I remember March very well. I remember being in Washington that first week of March. And uh, Bob and I actually, at the end of February, uh, went into Chinatown and had brunch, then some on, uh, in Chinatown prior, uh, because there was a lot of concern about, uh, you know, the viruses in Wuhan, obviously, the, the world knew about it. And uh, there was concern uh, in the local market about, uh, Chinatown and Bob and I immediately went in there and went and had a, a huge event. Uh, we participated in a huge event with um, uh, Michelle, Michelle, uh, our uh, city councilor, Michelle Liu. And um, you know, it was a great success. And then off to Washington, we went and uh, the words were just starting to be uttered in the United States at that time. I believe, um, I believe that they hadn't even had trouble in Washington at that point with it. Um, it was just prior to, uh, the unfortunate situation that developed in the uh, managed care facilities in Washington. Yeah, it was a um, 
just just a just a trying to kind of thought process uh, of of going through that, and you know, you as the MRA chairman, but also as a as a businessman, you had a unique perspective on that whole thing, and 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 talk to us about you know some of your thoughts as as you were you know beginning to navigate the crisis and beginning to have conversations with people in government and beginning to talk to other restaurant operators. What was going through your mind as you know in a position as MRA chairman? Well, I I don't think any restaurant operator really thinks of his own property. I think we're always thinking of our community. We're always thinking of, you know, restaurants elsewhere and communities elsewhere and what they're going through. And I I think that uh, most of us probably consider that there was going to be some challenges elsewhere in the world and maybe here in the United States in some communities. But I don't think it ever dawned on me until uh, just a few days before the state shut down. I mean, I remember... uh, um, St. Patrick's Day weekend, I remember uh, things started uh, becoming challenging with crowd control and, and community spread uh, right around that time. And um, I really never got an opportunity to worry about about anything having to do with myself or my businesses. Um, we just went from uh, we went from fairly, uh, you know, a fairly benign situation to, uh, you know, a climatic uh, drama within you know, I think it was maybe six days, seven days. Um, how things developed on Friday before the state shut us down on Tuesday uh, was just an incredible five-day period. I remember uh, the situation got worse by the hour. Uh, my phone was ringing Friday, Friday night, Saturday, Saturday night into Sunday. And um, it just every time my phone rang, it was worse and worse. So um, honestly, I never had a chance to react. It was much more like the beginning was much more like a car accident. It just happened so quickly. You couldn't stop it. You just go right into survival mode. Uh, I'm a, the first time that I got depressed in the whole process was actually March Mar- was St. Patrick's Day. It was March 17th. I had I swung by an, an Irish restaurant uh, not too far from the office and I was picking up some food to go and I walked in and there was Irish music playing and it was all decorated for, for St. Patrick's Day and there was not one single person in the restaurant. And that, and that was the first real impact I felt as, hey, you know what, this, we're, th- th- this hurts and you kind of go into survival mode from there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't think any of us, I, we're a little bit different here in Boston because we had the shutdown. Um, we had to stay in, uh, uh, shelter in place, uh, during the marathon bombing. So that was an incredible, I think it was incredible for the whole country to see a city the size of Boston just turn off for a day and living here, um, seeing our city just shut down for a day was an incredible feeling. Um, I don't think anybody thought that that could ever happen in the United States. And I, and I remember specifically when China was shutting down, um, so many people that first week of March said, oh, they can do that in China. They can get people to stay home in China. They can't do that in the United States. And I think we all, we all learned within, within a week later that that's exactly what we can do in the United States. We did shut down and it was, it was just incredible. And, you know, understanding the way food is distributed, um, you know, much of the food in restaurants, the the ordering process isn't. Uh, we order food today and it comes in tomorrow. Um, we order food for today that comes in tomorrow. But our suppliers um, set up transportation for, you know, all the restaurants, the institutions here in Boston, as an example. They set up that supply chain a week ago for the item that we get tomorrow. So a lot of items started coming over to the East Coast um, from the West Coast. And suddenly they had no, no place to go. So a lot of our purveyors got stuck with an awful lot of product. It was a terrible situation that they were in. Um, I was very concerned about them. I don't think there was enough. Uh, they just didn't get quite the press that the restaurants got. But um, 
you know, they were in a terrible situation. And then once that distribution channel was shut down, uh, getting people in government to understand, hey, you know, when we turn off distribution like this, it's going to take a long time to get it going again. And I think that's something we're experiencing right now today with the prices for chicken and the prices for meat, um, the prices and the supply that we're, that we're not getting right now, the prices we are getting, unfortunately, the supply we're not. Um, I think we're all realizing that's exactly what happened, that, that turning this country off and then turning it back on again is a, is a long process. So we, we've described it often as, you know, when, when you're reopening a restaurant and I know you are reopening a, a number of restaurants, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, but you talk about, you know, trying to hire staff for one restaurant, you're hiring, you know, 50, 60 people. Now 15,000 restaurants are trying to hire 50, 60 people and get product and do all these things. And, and the government has shown it was very easy to turn the lights off, but it is a process to, to turn the lights on. Uh, you know, I think I've worked with you for a number of years on the board. Uh, you've been the chairman for the last two years. Uh, you've always been very thoughtful and, and methodical in, in your approach. Um, and, and, and you never take a lot of, you know, you're, you're never out in the spotlight, you know, for Jeff Gates, but you're out in the spotlight for the MRA. But, you know, you've had a trying time professionally over the last year. I was wondering if you could spend some time just talking about, you know, your personal um, issues and then how, how, how you're going to recover and, and, and what the plan is. Well, I mean, it was... Uh... A little, just a few weeks after um, the shutdown, the state allowed us to do takeout and delivery. Um, I don't know actually if they ever let us, if we ever had to stop doing takeout and delivery, but um, certainly we all started doing takeout and delivery. We had gotten uh, my Italian restaurant, my partners and I had gotten our Italian restaurant, Cinquecento, up and running for eight days. And a 30-inch 30 uh, inch water main broke on, um, on, uh, in April. I believe it was April 14th. Um, it was a Tuesday, Tuesday night. Um, it broke and destroyed the restaurant. It put five to six feet of water, uh, street water, I guess they call it black water or gray water or something. It's, you know, st street, um, street water and, you know, grease oil from our grease trap and, you know, everything else that's below ground in a restaurant, uh, septic system, everything just flooded our restaurant, destroyed it. Um, so that was a, a very difficult situation to deal with. Uh, my partners and I were already trying to just get our head above water and, uh, a 30 inch water main to raise the level of water on us pretty dramatically. So we had that going. Um, and it uh, has been a difficult time with the insurance company. Um, you know, the insurer that we're working with Acadia uh, has not been a, has not been a great partner, unfortunately. And, um, but uh, you know, that's what lawyers are for and public adjusters, unfortunately, mm -hmm. they'll, they'll sort it all out. Um, and then moving forward um, recently, I reopened, I'm reopening a, uh, a restaurant, a gaslight that I own with my partners and I, um, my partners and I have separated. They're continuing on with uh, their Aquitaine restaurants and Metropolis. And I'm reopening a uh, gaslight as Brasserie now, which is a, a French Brasserie <laughs> and in the same location as Gaslight. Um, it's been great. It's been as, you know, all the enjoyment I always have from opening a restaurant. The challenge right now is staffing, um, finding uh, line cooks and and servers is probably the biggest challenge because, as you said earlier in the conversation, we're all looking for the same people. All the restaurants in town and in the state are all looking for servers and line cooks and and all the people you need to keep things, keep the plates coming out of the kitchen, keep the guests happy. Um, we're all doing it at the same time, and it's 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 challenging. Um, it's going to take a while to work this out. Yeah, there's definitely the short-term challenges is definitely around labor and pricing and, and, and just kind of ramping back up. But what do you see some of the, the biggest challenges over the next thinking out six months, year, next couple of years? What are the biggest challenges the industry is going to have to overcome? Um, I think that, you know, the labor model is, 
um, you know, we have fewer people uh, chasing uh, a lot of jobs. So, you know, the labor model, it's been very tough in the labor model. And um, I think it's going to take a while to find the right, the right fit of the new labor model and the pricing of menus. So, uh, you know, I think that's something that's going to be, it's going to be a lot of pressure on the consumer and a lot of pressure on the operators trying to find that, that balance. I mean, we're in a symphony with our, with our guests, right? We're all, you know, we're pricing and putting out a product that we're finding our market and our market is accepting of our product and our pricing. And that's how we, that's how we stay open. That's how your business becomes viable. And when you have a dramatic change in, uh, in one of the, the largest costs of operating a restaurant, which is labor, when you have this dramatic change, it's going to be hard for operators to absorb that, especially coming out of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably that, you know, quite a bit of that change is going to find its way to the consumer. And we've got to, now we have to realign with our consumer. Our consumer needs to be educated. That's something that they should be expecting. And, um, you know, we've got to prepare our consumer that uh, prices will be going up and uh, hopefully not too much. And, um, you know, and as the labor market returns, as we start, uh, you know, taking up some of the slack in the labor market and start finding more, more, more people to work in our restaurants. Yeah, absolutely. And we've, and we've also, we've taught our guests to eat at home for the past year. And so getting, you know, takeout and, and delivery to be a, you know, a financially viable option for both the operator and the consumer, I think is going to be, you know, something that a number of restaurants are going to have to balance uh, moving forward. Yeah, and I think um, just supply in general, there's an incredible, I don't know how much everybody's aware of it, but there's an incredible shortage of truck drivers, of truckers, both short haul and long haul truckers. And it's really driving up, uh, it's it's reducing and diminishing supply, and it's driving up shipping costs, and that's driving up, obviously driving up costs in general. So that's another factor uh, that's, that's really weighing on everything. I'm sure it's all going to work out over time, but everybody's going to have to be patient. And, um, you know, we definitely have enough consumers. We just, uh, getting the product, getting glassware, getting silverware, getting paper goods, um, you know, getting those kinds of things into our restaurants at a price that's reasonable and at a time that's reasonable without it being, you know, back ordered and things like that is, that's a challenge that I feel is going to be around until well into the fall. And that's definitely a frustration that I hear with operators talking all the time that, you know, can't get croissants, they can't get chicken, you know, whatever it is, it's all, it's all connected. So, um, let, let's, let's jump ahead to your, you know, kind of role with the MRA and, and how long you've been involved and your, your role on the board. Uh, you know, I, I bet you when you, when you raised your hand and said you'd be the chairman, I bet you never thought you would be navigating a, a hundred year crisis, um, while, while you were doing it. Yeah. I mean, this. I definitely had no expectation of it. I don't think, you know, I don't think any of us, uh, nobody's prepared. Um, we've been trying to prepare ourselves for the past year. Um, even while we've been in this crisis, I don't think anybody's really truly been prepared for it. Um, but it's been, I, I got involved in the Restaurant Association because of advocacy. Um, I know that, you know, rules and regulations and laws and things like that come out of a room with people in them talking. And I just always kind of thought, well, sooner or later, the people who are in those rooms now are, are going to pass away, you know, pass on, move, retire. Um, there's got to be somebody who's got to take up those seats. And I've always saw, seen myself as somebody that wanted to be in one of those seats. Um, I started as a dishwasher back when I was 20 years old. And because of the path, the fertile path of the restaurant industry, I was able to work my way through all the positions, all the way up to owning restaurants, owning multiple units. And I was really interested in making sure that path stayed clear for the people behind me, the next, 
you know, Jeff Gates dishwasher. Um, you know, I'm also always been really taken by the diversity of our industry. Um, the, the immigrant, the immigrants that, um, own restaurants in our industry, the women, uh, there's just so many people, there's so many different faces that own our, our industry. I mean, our industry is about, uh, you know, different types of food and, and different cultures and their food. And it's only goes to follow that there's those cultures are led by, you know, people, those menus and restaurants are led by people within those cultures. And I've always been fascinated by it. I think it's the restaurant industry is one of the diver, diverse industries that the United States should really be proud of. And I think keeping that path clear is something that's our responsibility. So I got involved in the state restaurant association and I got involved in the national restaurant association to, you know, to stay next to these issues and to, to be a voice for these issues and to be a voice for the, for the people, the dishwashers of the future that want to own a restaurant. I mean, I've always appreciated your advocacy. Uh, you know, we always talk about, you know, we go in with the suits and we, we kind of frame the issue. But, the, you know, the real advocacy comes from the operators going up and telling their story. And, and you've done it phenomenally over the years. And, and I'm putting the plug now to I hope you continue to join us at the State House for, for other issues when you're not the chairman, uh, because you do, you do a fantastic job telling that story on behalf of other people in the industry, you know, that, that need it and, and, and the, the, the path to middle class and beyond and the fact that you can be successful in the industry without having a Harvard MBA. Uh, just all those different tales of our industry, you've, you've done phenomenal telling them. And, and, I, and I, I've really enjoyed working with you, in, both uh, prior to you becoming the chair and, and now that you are the chairman. Oh, thanks, Steve. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's good. I mean, the thing about an association is, you know, having the support of an association, having the support of its members, um, you really do feel like you're with, in a room of people that have a common goal and a common issue. And you feel like, you know, together, you know, one voice is kind of quiet in the room, but together you're a chorus. And, um, you know, I've always felt like I was part of the association. You know, you and other people in the association have always, you know, made me feel welcome and made me feel like that, you know, I had something to contribute. And I've I've hopefully done the same thing with others that have come in behind me. I've been with the association a long time and are new members now. Uh, I just do my best to make sure they feel like they're part of it as well, that they're fighting. We're all fighting for the same thing. So. Absolutely. I, I, I appreciate that, Steve. Thank you. Do you have any advice for the incoming chair, chairwoman? Um, I think, uh, you know, you can never listen, can never listen enough. Um, and I think you've got to try to stay in touch with how you became successful and try to make sure that you keep that same path clear for the next person behind you. I think that that's, you know, that's, that's the best we can do for anybody is to make sure that uh, the path we took is clear for all. And um, I think that that's, uh, I think that's something that the next chair needs to look into. I think the next chair needs to continue um, keeping an eye on, on the membership of our association and being sure that we continue to grow in size and diversity and voice and that uh, we continue to look for issues that maybe we don't experience, maybe I don't experience, but another operator experiences and maybe I don't experience in my community, but another operator experiences in their community. And keep an ear out for those for those kinds of issues, and make sure they're advocating for those as well. That's awesome, Jeff. Thank you very much for joining us today, Jeff Gates, MRA Chairman, outgoing MRA Chairman, and uh, head of a new venture group, Soa Hospitality. Hey, thank you, Steve, and uh, best luck to you all. Jeff, thank you very much. This is Kerry Miller, the Vice President of Operations for the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, and this is What's Next.
This is Kerry Miller, and this is What's Next. Today on What's Next, my guest is Todd Snapkowski. Todd is the founder of SnapChef, New England's premier on-demand staffing solution. The idea for SnapChef was a culmination of ye- years of Todd's experience in recognizing the gap in availability of qualified supplementary staff. It's because of his passion to fill the need within the industry that SnapChef was born and is running since, successfully since 2002. Today, SnapChef is one of the most innovative training and placement agencies in the hospital space. Welcome to the show, Todd. Hey, thank you, Kerry, for that wonderful introduction. Yeah, you and I have known each other for a while, and we've been uh, we've been banging around in uh, various. Uh, you know, we seem to end up in the same space a lot when it comes to work workforce development and stuff like that. Um, but let's start with the pandemic. You know, back when this thing hit, you know, a year or so ago. Uh, I know your business was turned upside down because you were putting out hundreds of day placement chefs and that business just kind of evaporated. What did, uh, what did you and SnapChef do to survive this thing this class past year? Well, we're still, we're still getting through it. Um, you know, uh, we, we lost 75% of our revenue, um, pretty much overnight within three days. We were, we were down from, uh, 1200 shifts to 200. Um, so that, that really hit us, hit us hard and quick. Um, and, uh, we, we, we just started to look at, you know, the, the landscape of what, what we can do. And, um, it's, it's been the busiest 14 months we've had, I, I have to be honest, uh, behind the scenes. Uh, and it's all, um, it looks like we're going to come out of this on, on the positive side of things. So that's, uh, a good note there. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't shock me for a second, Todd, that you and your team over there, which are awesome, um, had the ability to, you know, be innovative and, and do, uh, do different things to get yourself through when you didn't have that, that you know, those 30 vans setting out on a, on a morning-by-morning basis so dropping chefs off at uh, different places in Boston. Um, so... What did you got? What's what's on the innovation front? Because I was on your webpage just not long ago, and I've noticed that you're doing some things differently with your app and uh, some uh, online training. Well, um, well, just like everybody else, I mean, vir- virtual platforms that we were working on pre-pandemic uh, really came into full focus pretty quickly um, during the pandemic because everybody was working from home, or not everybody, but majority of the folks that we we were working with were working from home and. Um, we implemented an applicant tracking software um, so people can uh, fill out their application uh, from their computer at home or from anywhere. Uh, they don't necessarily have to come into our offices anymore. We're looking forward to the day that they do, yep. uh, which is really soon. Um, you know, we're looking at uh, June, the first week of June. Um, you know, some of our managers have gone back into the offices, but uh, Danielle and my wife, um, the business partners, you know, um, was really working hard on the software side of things. The Snap app is now um, an online virtual on-demand staffing platform uh, that is literally, um, you know, all of our managers are work. We're working from home and um, able to use the platform as as a control center, if you will, um, to make things happen. Um, so yeah, we're starting to see signs of life, and um, I think Carl went back into Worcester last week. He was in there getting things set back up again. To, blown the dust off of the computers and um, it looks like we'll be opening back up over the next few weeks, which is encouraging. Yeah. For those that don't know, and I, and I probably should have done a better job up front that there, Todd has three training sites now where he, he trains, uh, uh, trains folks culinary uh, skills to get them to the 
space where they're uh, proficient in a kitchen and they can go out and, and at the, the Dorchester and Worcester spaces I've seen and, and they're phenomenal. I mean, talk about a great uh, uh, training facility uh, and he's done both. And then, he, and then again, since the pandemic, I know that he's gone with online education that's, that's, that's also honing those culinary skills so he can and place people out. You know, the, the thing that is, is crazy right now, and there's no silver bullet to it, Todd, but we come out of one pandemic and we're into another, right? Uh, I just think we're just feeling the effects that are really going to yeah. affect the industry even more than uh, they already have. But um, it's the staffing shortages yeah. and uh, figure, well, shortages. I don't know if the people are coming back into our industry. They might have gone into different career paths and we're still trying to figure all that out. Um, but like, like you said, pre-pandemic, we were training in our four locations, actually. Um, and, and, you know, on, on demand, uh, um, fast track culinary training that you and I have been talking about for years about the workforce development. And we've developed that apprenticeship program and um, we've, we've kind of, you know, pulled it all together online um, and we'll be launching that hopefully within the next few weeks, along with reopening our offices. So it'll be a hybrid model. So we'll be able to do in-person training uh, as well as online uh, training virtually, which is, is pretty cool. It's a, it's a next step for us that we've been talking about for a while. And it, it finally, Looks like it'll be coming together, like I said, over the next few weeks. It's exciting. Yeah, I, and you said it, and I agree wholeheartedly. Listen, those folks that think this is a UI issue for the, the staffing shortage are going to be the ones that are not going to figure this out because it's not a UI issue. This is a ta- this is a talent evaporation issue. I mean, people sat on the sidelines for for six months, and although they earned a little bit extra money in their paycheck. They, they've evolved into different, I'm very con- convinced that they've evolved into different careers and the bodies aren't there for the, for the food uh, and restaurant space to staff now. And if we're not thinking outside the box and trying to source out of different ponds, you know, you've this, the, the bodies you're trying to recruit aren't there. So I think having SnapChef be kind of the innovator up front to say, I can train somebody into a culinary position in a short amount of time that hasn't had any culinary experience in the past or hasn't had any restaurant experience in the past is, is yeah. again, no silver bullet, but it's an option, right? Yeah, well, th- that's for sure. And it's, um, you know, figuring out the unemployment game. I think that'll be the first piece. Um, as, we, as I think um, some, some folks that I've talked to in, uh, recently in the restaurant industry have, um, you know, uh, just really been having a hard time you know, thread the needle on where, where, you know, indeed's not working. It's like throwing money into a campfire. I'm hearing it's, you know, what, what's out there, what can we do? And as you know, we are, our, you know, our core client base is not really restaurants. Uh, It's more the corporate scene. Um, But if you think about the corporate scene um, where we're opening up our, our, you know, um, database, so to speak to these restaurant partners that we're working with um, is that our, Corporate clients are typically uh, Monday through Friday, you know, six in the morning till three in the afternoon. So we have a, a vast database of folks that are in that category, right? Whether yep. they're working or not is another story, but they're in that category and always looking for extra work. So if we can open up that database to the restaurant partners that we have, and then we'll, we'll be bringing on as we get more and more calls, um, you know, just to, to you know, encourage our empl- current employees to look at working a couple extra shifts on Thursday, Friday nights, Saturday nights, and, and supplementing their income and their unemployment benefits because they can do both. Right. There's a Massachusetts unemployment calculator. That's one of our 
you know, uh, tools that we've been using over the last, I don't know, six months at least, um, you know, telling people, listen, you know, we know that you're collecting benefits and it's great, but did you know that you can use the Massachusetts unemployment calculator and plug in your current stat, your current stats, and it'll tell you how many hours you can get without your unemployment benefit that's being um, affected at all. That's somewhere between 10 and 16 hours, almost two shifts effectively they could work without having their benefits um, touched at all. Uh, so that, that's been working for us as a staffing company. Um, and I know that people want more consistency and a few more um, shifts, if you will, um, full, maybe full-time shifts, but um, that's one thing that can, can work for people if they're willing to uh, do a little extra training or, you know, um, whatever it takes to bring the, the shifts that they need together along those lines. So, and there's other legislation that, that is in Rhode Island. Um, they're going to be looking at 150% benefits while making full pay. Um, so they're, they're trying to encourage people to, to get back to work, keep your benefits. We'll, we'll keep paying your benefits for you know, a certain amount of time. And that should ease people back into, into the work sites that are willing or haven't changed careers, as you just pointed out, yep. um, that are willing to, to, to pick up shifts and, um, not lose their benefits, which is a good idea. Yeah, I know that Steve and Bob, Steve Clark and Bob Les are working on, you know, with the UI to flip it on its head and say, what's bonus them to give them back to work, right? And and that gives them the opportunity to slide it back into the the workforce. And And I think the fact that you have this opportunity for restaurants to get involved with your database of culinarily trained uh, employees is awesome. Hot. So if I was a restaurant operator right now and I wanted to do something like that and have a conversation with you, just go on your website. Yeah, go on my website. Um, we have the snap bot affectionately known as uh, snap chef, the 24 hour, uh, chat bot that we can reach us, um, 24 seven. Um, and just, uh, follow the directions there or the questions. And, um, if you're looking as a restaurant, looking for people, um, we will respond within um, hopefully minutes if it's Monday through Friday, nine to five, um, and definitely within 24 hours uh, otherwise. Um, so we, we're you know constantly checking that and getting notifications when you know people do come to our website. Uh, but there's a ton of information on our website. It's just not up front. You have to scroll down to the bottom and you can you know research our training programs, apprenticeships. Um, but you will see soon the up front and center the Snapchat powered by Ruby relationship that we're building now and the, the, the fast track uh, curriculum that we're putting out there that was kind of recognized by the state for apprenticeships. And as, as I'm telling you stuff that you already know, but for the, the, the crowd yeah, that's listening right. or here's this, um, you know, that that'll be a virtual training platform that is bringing an entry-level person that has never been in a professional kitchen or maybe some fast food experience, giving them the tools that they need uniforms from, you know, head to toe, um, the, the basics, um, A plus B equals C about sanitation, serve safe. And, um, it's a, it's a really cool program actually. And, um, I'm looking forward to rolling it out and, you know, talking with restaurants and continue talking with restaurants and food service uh, organizations that are looking to hire the right people with the right attitude that they're willing to train. Cause right now, like you said, we have to start, you know, home growing these, these folks ourselves and, uh, coming up with solutions because, um, just we're we're finding that it's really difficult to get find the people um, with the skills, and um, I think that will start to come back a little bit as this um, the restrictions are lifted and 
um, people are, are, are seeing that the benefits are running out or um, there's other options for benefits. Um, I think we'll start to see the more skilled people coming back. Uh, but let's face it, I, I've heard that they're, they're, they're in the driver's seat demanding, you know, higher pay, which, you know, it's all about negotiating, right. And, and being the right boss and doing the right thing as a boss um, or manager, you know, bringing somebody back. Um, it's going to be tricky, um, you know, but some of these benefits that we create, um, these learning opportunities, workforce development model that we have and um, can, can share with others, um, I think is a, for us, it's a great next step. It's really something that, you know, we've been doing for years in person, um, but now we're going to be able to scale it a little more um, and direct it towards restaurants, which we really haven't been able to do um, in the past, um, just because our model is more of a corporate structure where you do salad bars and delis and, you know, home stations. So there's some advanced skills, but not, there's not a whole lot of uh, saute cooking, line cooks, which seems to be the biggest request coming from restaurants is, um, you know, line cook, saute, grill, pantry. Yep. Um, that's a little different than the corporate cafeteria, which is where my chef hat was worn uh, for a decade was in, in the corporate cafeterias, hence the model, right? Yep. Um, but we're looking at and seeing um, and working with restaurant groups right now that are really uh, benefiting from, uh, you know, a few weeks of experience working with SnapChef and um, we've been filling some voids, which is encouraging. Um, I think from, uh, it's, a, you know, not to sound cliche, but it's definitely a win-win situation so far. And I'm looking forward to, um, you know, talking about those yeah, yeah. relationships down, down in, the, in the not too distant future. No. So I, listen, I know you've established some relationships with some restaurateurs in, in Boston and, and you're working towards that now. And I, I want to make a point and then I want to talk a little bit about one more thing that I'm going to have to wrap. But um, so if you're an employer of choice, you have much less of uh, a need to restaff your restaurant. If you do the things that people need and want right now, and I think if you go down through Gen Z, you know, there's a consistent mm -hmm. DNA that runs through that. If you're training me and you give me an opportunity to learn and be a part of a culture that I can grow my career in, I'm going to stick around, right? Yep. If I think it's a dead-end job and I don't think you're hearing me and I don't think that you're giving me any uh, advancement opportunities, uh, I'm going to go across the street and maybe that's when I start asking for more money. So with SnapChef, Todd's laying out the foundation of those educational pieces that restaurateurs can build off of their culture. So again, I, I recommend highly that they, that any restaurateur, which means all restaurateurs right now that are looking for help should be reaching out to Todd and overwhelming him with things that uh, <laughs> he, can, he can hopefully, he and Danielle can hopefully figure out uh, technology. Yeah, well, let's bring, bring it on. We'll, we'll, we'll do what we can to help. Awesome. We've always done that and I'm looking forward to seeing if, if we can, you know, line up some, some opportunities that make sense for everybody. That'd be great. So, so, so the last thing in this, and it's kind of our, our, our passion project, Todd, and you and I have been doing this and with mixed results for four years now, plus probably. Oh, yeah. And we started off when, and it's second chance, um, uh, culinary education, hospitality education to take people, uh, out of the recidivism cycle, get them a great job, educate the heck out of them, and get them with an employer that's empathetic to get, you know, second chances. And, you know, whether it be the impact group, the hopes grant, currently you and I are participating in the Perkins grant out in Worcester. Mm -hmm. uh, we're working diligently to make sure that um, people that want to write their, correct their path, have an opportunity to do so, happen to do so in the food service space, which has always been a group of people that are empathetic to, you know, people having a second chance at something. So, 
I guess my question now is now that there's this incredible um, need for employees, do you feel like we're going to have more attention span paid against it, more um, involvement? Do you think more people will try to tap into it? I I hope. Well, I mean, there's good and bad news to that. Um, You know, these, these folks that are coming out that are working behind the line, so to speak, um, behind the fences, right? I mean, they're the ones that are encouraged to, to be taking these classes. They're, they're literally taking classes, culinary arts and hospitality management, trying when they come out for, to, for a better life. Those are the folks that I would want to work with, right? right? The people that want to make a difference, but the numbers are low. What do we have for, for the Perkins grant? Five people coming out over the next six to 12 months. Yeah. That, you know, I'm, 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 I'm actually going to be selfish and be focusing on those folks for Snapchef and, building careers within my company. Like there's, but there's not just the Perkins grant. There's the hopes grant. There's, there's a bunch of other stuff out there that um, there's a ton of opportunity out there to find people. Um, It's just a matter of changing the way you view um, how you find people or how they fit in with the team. Right. Yeah. There's going to be the the, the old pond. It's been fished out. Um, And if we're not thinking about creative creative ways to bring bring people in, and to your point, Todd, uh, if I was you, I'd be first in line too because you're making the investment in it and we need to get other folks involved in making the investment in, you know, hopes and, you know, uh, the grants that are out there, workforce development grants. But, uh, yeah, I I think we've got 23 in the hopes program now, but it's a new 23 and they'll be evolving out over the course of the next you know, well, I think that's, weeks. I think the hopes grant has the most potential, um, based on the national attention it has with the NRA, yep. right. And the MRA and everything, all the work we've been doing over, you guys have really been, you know, leading the charge on it. And it's, 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 you know, it's, a, it's not an easy thing to get going. Um, but it's, it's, it's got wheels now, um, you know, community work services, uh, they're, they're, you know, some of the best uh, at, at at this game in culinary and hospitality training um, of these, um, you know, populations, if you will. Um, and and we're, I think that's really where we started seeing some traction, right? Yep. And, and there's some really good folks that are coming through that, yep. again, it's it's a matter of, or uh, the, the groups like NECAT, right? How many people know about NECAT? Like NECAT is a fantastic tool to use um, as restaurant owners, and I know there's a lot of restaurants and, and uh, food service companies that are working with NECAT. Um, and I've always said this from day one that NECAT started. They could put 10 NECATs within a five-mile radius and still not, this is pre-pandemic, fill the voids of the needs for, for workforce development in our in Boston, just Boston alone, True. right? True. So um, there's a ton, there, not a ton, but there's a lot of really good avenues out there that people, A, a don't know about or B, have heard about, but it's second chance. Uh, individuals, well, those people that have a second chance, they know you know where they've been, yep. and, and seeing where they want to go. If you interview them, you'll see really quickly how how passionate they are about, you know, keeping their life on 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 the, the right track and and uh, the the framework that has been built around it from the MRA, the NRA, um, stuff that we've helped out with the apprenticeship programs. These are a career path and workforce development solutions that are. Um, embedded and ingrained in the DNA of these programs. And I think it's really important to know that that's what is life-changing that there's a, and I think I mentioned this on our last call on the, the Perkins grant with the five folks that were, you know, doing a zoom call. I mean, 
you could tell the passion. You can tell that they wanted to, to, to come out and get it, you know? Yep. And those are the folks that you want to, that's, those are the folks you want to, those people with the right attitudes. You know what I mean? Oh, without, not, they don't want to go back to where they were. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I think if you you canvass the, the, the restaurateurs out there and ask them what the energy and the desire and drive level is of people coming through the door, it's pretty low. Mm-hmm. Um, so real, real quick, for those that don't know, the Hopes Grant is uh, it's a national grant that uh, Todd's involved with us. And um, it's 18 to 24-year-olds that have been involved with the justice system. And we're training them and we're giving them uh, career counseling and life coaching through uh, community-based organizations in Boston. And if you, if, if you haven't heard of it and you're looking and you're interested, you should reach out to me or Todd, and we'd be happily, happy to en- engage with you and, and to let you know what's going on with it. I got to wrap, but um, yeah. first, first and foremost, I want to, you know, uh, Todd Snopkowski and SnapChef have been highly involved with the Massachusetts Restaurant Association and e- equally involved with the Massachusetts Restaurant Association Educational Foundation. You'll see him at every Pro Start Invitational. Uh, he's always the first one to say yes when it comes to supporting this kind of stuff. He's built himself an incredibly smart business that I can see is going to evolve into an even smarter business, especially with his wife working on the software in the background. Um, and Todd, listen, thank, thank, I want to thank you for coming on today, but more importantly, I th- thanks for the relationship we've got here and thanks for your support of everything that we do. Uh, you've been an incredible. Yeah, it's, been, it's, it's been a good run, Kerry. Honestly, it's been a lot, a lot of fun. I mean, it's, it's new and innovating for me to, to be able to chat with you and over the years and just figure these things out and continue to figure them out. And hopefully this, this pandemic doesn't knock us all down to the point where we can't get back up, but um, looking forward to continuing our relationship. As we will. Thank you, Mrs. Stopkowski. Awesome. Thank you, Kerry. You've been listening to Together We Win, the Massachusetts Restaurant Association podcast. Produced by the Massachusetts Restaurant Association in partnership with Image Unlimited Communications and Red 13 Studios. For more information on the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, please visit themassrest.org. Thank you. You've been listening to Together We Win, the MRA podcast. For any information on this podcast or any other episode, visit us at our website, themassrest.org.